always say one of the problems with this, the work we do is nothing we do, if you talk about it in a bar, is going to get you laid on a Friday night. What's shaking? Welcome back to the All In Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Jordan. Today, I'm here with Stephen Kotler. I'm excited because this dude, New York Times bestselling author, award-winning journalist, executive director of the Flow Research Collective, which is fantastic. And here's what's really cool. Author of 10 bestsellers, including his new book, The Art of the Impossible, Art of the Impossible, The Future is Faster Than You Think. And man, nominated for two Pulitzer Prize, too. That's Incredible. Steven, welcome to the show, my man. Good to be with you. I'm really excited because there's a, I really want to hear about the Flow Research Collective as we start into this because I know I want to talk about your book, which is amazing. You know, it's the art of impossible and you're just crushing life, aren't you? <laughs> the book has made some noise. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah, a little bit, right? <laughs> we, we made a little bit of noise. Yeah. <laughs> I've not actually seen this much noise before, but you know, we, we made some noise. That's great. How does that feel? I mean, compared to something that, you know, like the future is faster than you think, how does this compare to that so far? Uh, we had 10 bestseller lists last week. I've wow. never, I mean, I've, you know, I've written 13 books I, and some of them have done remarkably yeah. well. I've never hit 10 bestseller lists at once before. So <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> you know, yeah. that, was, that was cool. Yeah. No, that's just a little bit of noise. Yeah, I, right? I don't know. Yeah, that was <laughs> yeah for sure. That's awesome, my man. So how did you get started as an author? Because I know you also have the Flow Research Collective too, right? That, that kind I, of... I, uh, yeah, the, um, I uh, started out as a, uh, as a journalist. Um, I, was an, I was always an author. I was trained actually as a poet and then I was a fiction writer. And I was sort of looking for a way to pay for the novels. You know what I mean? Like I had to make a living while I was writing the novels. Um, and uh, I fell into magazine journalism. It was a very, very, very good fit for me. It didn't matter what domain I looked, wherever I saw the impossible, impossible, you see a bunch of stuff, but you were all, I was always seeing the state of consciousness known to researchers as flow. It's an optimal state of performance, and it's essentially how human beings are hardwired for peak performance. So it makes sense that it was, it was there whenever you would see these incredible feats. But I just got obsessed. I was, the, besides covering these things, I was interested in neuroscience and psychology, and I was writing about that as well. And I really wanted to apply the tools of neuroscience to the study of flow. And, you know, I spent a long time trying to convince academics to start the Flow Research Collective years because I didn't think, I, I mean, I'm a freaking journalist. I'm trained as yeah. a poet. What right do I have, <laughs> right? Doing, doing a neurobiology <laughs> research issue just felt crazy. And after years of it, <clears throat> I finally started to realize that flow, especially when I was starting to do this, it was an altered state of consciousness. And talking about it as like the source code of peak performance was, it was just too weird for academia, even though the data was sort of overwhelming, it was still too strange. So what I figured out is that all those same neuroscientists who would not start this research project, when I was like, okay, I'll start the damn thing. They all jumped on my board and said, yes, we want to help. We're totally down. And I was like, really? <laughs> They're really? just waiting for the one guy, right? Seriously, one right, guy was right. you. Because <laughs> I'm the dude with like moron on his head, <laughs> um, on his forehead. But um, yeah, so I mean, that's really where it came about. And now uh, you asked about the collective. We're a research and training organization. On the research side, we 
across the boards, we study the neurobiology of peak performance. What's going on in the brain and the body when we're performing at our best? We do this on the research side in conjunction with like USC, UCLA, Stanford, University of Miami, et cetera, researchers all over the place, um, neuroscientists primarily. And the training side, we train about 1,000 people a month. And this goes from like members of the US Special Forces and professional Olympic athletes all the way through members of the Fortune 500, you know, C-suite executives to like soccer moms from Indiana and insurance brokers from Iowa. So it's it's really a, a huge spectrum. That's awesome. What's a disqualifier to jump on board with something like this? Because I mean, that's a that is a huge spectrum. But who who doesn't really fit well into that? Well, it, so it's interesting. What we don't do is um, my organization is really involved in um, taking people from like zero to dangerous. You know what I mean? Because we start at zero, we go up to Superman. We don't go broken to zero. There's a whole, psychology as a whole does that. There's tons of experts who do that work. We don't do that work in general. The only other qualifier, because every human being is hardwired for peak performance, the only other thing we do is we do pre-interviews. Mostly this is just to get to know somebody and figure out exactly how to, how to train them best. But also we uh, screen for mania and bipolar disorder because uh, flow as a, as, as a state, which we're good at producing more of, underpins a lot of peak performance. It also produces a lot of dopamine in the brain. And if you have tendencies towards any kind of major mental illness, uh, flushing a huge bunch of dopamine in your system can cause problems. You can set off a manic episode if you're bipolar, can cause problems if you're schizophrenic. So we, we do some mental health screening on the front end. But other than that, um, and if you come in and, you know, there's there's really significant stuff that you want to fix, we can still train you in peak performance. We just send you elsewhere. We're like, look, you know, go get additional help here. We don't, that's not what we do. That's not our expertise. And there are brilliant people doing that work. We try yeah, to stay in our lane. That's awesome. I love that. Let's talk about flow for a bit because that's a phrase and it, it's kind of been adapted, you know, it, let's say even in film, right? Everyone saw, talks about the state of flow. What does it really mean to be in that state of it's flow? A great question. So um, I'll give you the definition, which isn't going to help much. And then I'll explain the definition. And then I'll explain the definition two more times. Perfect. <laughs> Literally. So the <laughs> definition of flow is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. Doesn't help anybody, right? Other than it's an optimal state of consciousness. It refers to any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. When your concentration gets so focused on the present moment and on the task at hand, everything else just seems to disappear. Action awareness will start to merge. Your sense of self and self-consciousness and awareness of bodily processes will diminish. Uh, time will pass strangely. It'll speed up and five hours go by in like five minutes. You get so sucked into the experience that, you know, time just flies by. Um, all aspects of performance, mental and physical, go through the roof. So high, in fact, that we what we experience that as is a sense of control. It's like we can control forces we can't normally control. The last characteristic that just sort of describes flow is it's an autotelic experience, meaning it's an end in itself. It's so euphoric. It's so pleasurable that once the experience starts generating flow, we want more of it and more of it. It's essentially the most addictive experience on earth or our favorite experience on earth, depending on they're both actually the same. But that's six, those six categories, what I just sort of listed completely. That's how psychologists measure flow. So they say, hey, you had an experience. Was there complete concentration in the present moment? Did actually awareness merge? was your sense of self-present and time dilate, et cetera, et cetera. Neurobiologically, 
we define flow by a ton of different signals. We see changes in neural anatomical function, neural chemistry, uh, neural electricity, network activity, and we're starting to decode it to the level of physiology. So we're starting to know there's a heart rate variability signal that seems to, if not correlate with flow, at least correlate with flow readiness. We know though more work needs to be done, it appears like you're smile muscles are hyperactive in flow and your frown muscles are kind of paralyzed. So we've gotten the measurement of this state pretty much down to like the physiology. There's huge questions. We could drive a bus through holes in the research, but we are really taking it down to kind of physiological and neurobiological signals, which makes it a lot more trainable. Sure. And there's got to be a state in any kind of research that you're doing too. I'm assuming anyways would be almost and even mostly empirical in nature especially when you get into flow readiness. And I'm curious about that too, because what, what's that threshold between <laughs> flow readiness to when you're in the state? That's a really interesting and not completely. So there are, there are flow triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. That's if you want more flow, that's your toolkit. That's not what we're talking about here. In a sense, you're talking about the, the pre-state into the state itself. So what we know and by uh, we, the field, because this was not research that my organization did. It was originally done at Harvard by a guy named Herbert Benson. But low, we used to think 20 to 25 years ago, it was a binary system. Like you're either in the zone or you're not in the zone. It works like a light switch on or off. Turns out that's not true at all. Turns out flow is a four-stage process. There's different changes in brain function underneath each stage. And some of the third stage is the flow state itself. Starts with a struggle phase where you're loading the brain information. Then there's an incubation period where you're sort of like relaxing. And then it's followed by the flow state itself. And there's a recovery period on the back end. And so if you want more flow, you actually have to move through the entire cycle completely. So to put a, to put a finer point on it, about once a month, somebody comes up to me and says, oh, dude, you got to study me and I'm in flow all the time. <laughs> and I, I, I swear to God that happens. I wish it didn't, uh, but I swear to God it happens. And for a really long time, I like I, I don't like sort of being mean and like I didn't know what to do. And finally, I just decided the best thing I could do for this person is tell the truth. And I was, you know, so I started giving the real answer, which is, you know, we have a name for that. We call that schizophrenia. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, not so good mania. Yeah, the, the like, detachment like, from reality. Yeah, yes. detachment from reality, grandiosity. Like, there's a yep. bunch of stuff that go along with it that it's not, you're not actually talking about peak performance anymore. You're talking about something else. Yep. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> no, let's dive down the rabbit hole. I'm kidding. This is sarcasm right here of entrepreneurs and they're, oh, I'm in that state all the time, right? That's exactly, by the way, how did you know? Yep. <laughs> That's hilarious, man. That's, uh, this it was really, of, it was, that was where I started. It was the first time, the very first time it happened. It was the second, third public speech I'd ever given on. Well, not public, but when I was actually just talking about flow specifically. Yeah. Third one, it was a group of hotshot entrepreneurs from L.A., and sure enough, afterwards, two different people came up to me and both said, and I was like, you guys should meet each other. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I'm sure you attract it. I mean, because this is the thing, right? You know, because I've done work on myself too, even some, you know, some things that have to do with the state of flow. And there's this aura that kind of exists in a lot of seminars and conferences, which is really the broken high performer, right? And as you look back at, you know, how you said you go from zero to flow, but you don't go from broken to zero. 
you know, how do you start to pick out those individuals? Because I'm sure, I mean, when it comes well, to no, everybody has I mean, trauma. It's, right? So it's interesting. There's a misnomer here that's very popular in society today that like you can't start working on peak performance if you're broken. First, you got to fix the broken and then you can build from there. That every super successful person I've ever met, and I'll bet you agree with me on this, is running from something just as fast as they're running towards someone, Right. Absolutely. And one of the reasons is it's hard to get where you're going and you need that double motivation. Fear is a great motivator. If you can work with it properly, it's fantastic. It's an ally. It's amazing. Um, so I've seen that over and over. When stuff is, is when I mean it's broken, meaning it's producing so much anxiety, anxiety blocks people's performance. Now, there are normal things you can do, mindfulness, gratitude practices, exercise that will lower anxiety and are, and are phenomenal parts of peak, any peak performance regimen. But there's, you know, there's trauma, there's stuff like that. That's just not our work. Um, we're not specialized in that. And I try really hard not to break people. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard enough here. I don't want to break anybody. So, with that stuff, it's not that we're weaning you out. It's not that we think you need to start there. A lot of people do in today's culture think they do. They think there's somehow like all the stuff that's messy upstairs stands between them and their dream lives. And most everybody, you know, besides the fact that fear is, is, is a wonderful motivator, I think every one of your like tragic flaws is, is the foundations of your superpowers. Oh, right, right on. Like yep. that's what, that's really what you end up building on um so much and you sort of invert your tragic flaws and you tend to get the things that actually really distinguish you wow that's incredible what's a, is this the core message or what is the core message of the art so of impossible the core message at the art impossible is first of all it, it sums up a couple of key concepts 30 years of research into kind of those moments in time when the impossible comes possible has taught me over and over and over again that human beings are hardwired for peak performance and we are all capable of so much more than we know the difficulty is human capability is literally an emergent property so it we cannot see it in ourselves it's totally invisible it only emerges when we push on our skills to the utmost again and again and again that's how we start to feel figure out what we're capable of so that was a truism across the boards. What I started to realize, and every time you saw the extraordinary, you saw flow. But it turns out after 30 years of looking at this stuff, flow, while it's foundational to peak performance and foundational to these, going after these higher goals, it's necessary but not sufficient. And it turns out when we say peak performance, we mean nothing more or less, I guess, than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. And that's a limited set of things. There are a set of skills that you would file under motivation that get us into the game, right? That's the energy that gets us into the game. There are a bunch of learning skills. This allows us to continue to play and continue to develop. Then there are a bunch of creativity and creative problem solving and creative decision-making skills. This, especially if you're going after high, hard goals where you're not quite sure how am I gonna get there, creativity is how we steer. And then flow, you know, no exaggeration here is how we turbo boost the results beyond all reasonable expectations. That's the biology underneath that. The biology underneath that is everything we mean by human being performance. The art impossible is a practical playbook for utilizing all those things. It turns out that biology is designed to work in a certain order, in a certain sequence. And if we get it all working together, 
pointed in the same direction, you go so much farther, faster as a result. So that's what the art of impossible is. It's for anybody who's interested in significantly leveling up their game and going after really harder challenges in their life. That's awesome. Do you discuss, because right before this, you were talking about how fear can be a powerful motivator. Do you get into that in the book too? A lot. Um, yeah, I actually, uh, I got a chat in the book on, on fear. We talk, um, first of all, I spent a lot of time with, uh, Laird Hamilton, who, um, is, uh, one of the greatest, uh, action adventure sport athletes in history. And, you know, just brilliant on the topic of fear. Um, we also, uh, Mike Gervais, um, who's a performance psychologist who works with the Seattle Seahawks and Kristen Ulmer, who, um, one of the greatest female athletes in history for sure. Um, and has become since she retired from skiing, um, a fear expert. So we sort of, there's a, there's a, there's a mind meld on fear in the book, but I always, I, I point out in the, in the end result is when we talk about fear and I, you know, people fear is something you don't want to start training in the beginning. You, there's a bunch of stuff you want to work on first before you really start going head on it at fear. Cause it's, demotivated, right? It's very difficult to continuously confront your fears. So you want a bunch of stuff already working for you. You want your sort of motivation skills lined up. There's some goal setting stuff. There's some grit skills. Once all those things start to come online, then it's time to train fear because then it becomes your ally. And you know the big deal with fear is, as I said a second ago, it gives you focus for free. The brain is 2% of our body weight consumes 25% of our energy and this is at rest. So anytime you right at anytime you get focused for free, this is why intrinsic motivators, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, mastery matter so much. Also, they also give us focus for free, right? You're passionate about something, you pay a fuck ton of attention to it, right? Everything else just disappears, right? And this could be like a romantic partner or an idea as an entrepreneur. It doesn't matter. You're still unbridled attention. Same thing with fear, right? So peak performers, the way I describe it, They use fear as a compass. And I'll give you an example from my own life. So in every one of my books, there are three levels of challenges. I've written a lot of books. There's the communication challenge. These are the ideas I'm trying to communicate. There's an artistic challenge. There's a way I'm trying to get the writing to work, to do, right? And and often that's like fun for me, right? And then in every book I write, I set like just an actual like, oh, here's the thing that scares me and I'm going to do it anyways challenge. I'll give you a simple example. I wrote a book called Bold about how entrepreneurs um, could tackle, um, could significantly level their game. And we focused on, um, I wrote a co-wrote with Peter Diamandis. We focused on Elon Musk and Larry Page and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, men who had built impossible business empires in near record time. And, uh, you know, Flow was a part of that equation and a bunch of other things were part of that equation. Um, but all of them were steering by fear, by the way. But when I was writing that book, you know anything about business books, you'll know that pretty much every business book out there sucks. They're yeah. terrible. <laughs> they're badly written. Yeah. They're badly written. Somebody had an idea. They they literally have like four paragraphs worth of a book and they're going to repeat it for 200 pages or they make no goddamn sense. I'm still trying to figure out what the hell seven habits of seven highly successful people says. I can't even like read the language in there. <laughs> Dude, and I, I think I'm an expert at this stuff. Yeah. I'm like, I don't get it, guys. I just don't like it. So my literally my <laughs> the goal was can I write a business book and like a how-to business book that doesn't suck? And I know that doesn't sound like, but I was terrified in writing this book. Like I'm, I'm an artist. I have a reputation to uphold. You know what I mean? I'm going to venture into the business world, um, which is a weird thing. I'm an old punk rocker also. So like, 
you know, me venturing into the business world in general was a weird place for me to go. And then trying to write a business book that doesn't suck. And I, you know, people love Bold. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for a really long time. And um, I personally think I sort of got halfway there. I, I did I did a better job than, than I think almost all of it. It's fun to read and you can learn a lot and it's very practical and applicable. But I don't, I still think... I got, I'm 50 to 70% of the way towards the goal that I set for myself, just so you know. <laughs> That's great, man. I love how you phrase that too. It was like <laughs> how to write a business book that doesn't suck. You know, it's a, you started talking about the seven hi- habits of highly effective people, man. And I remember going through that. I mean, that's Franklin Covey, right? <laughs> I don't yeah. mean to do, I don't, there's no. so many people out there who I don't, <laughs> I don't understand it. Cause what he had like a marketing idea. And like, there's no science, there's no science, there's no, there's, I, I'm missing yeah. what's there that underpins it one other than just like this guy's sort of opinion on a bunch of stuff Yeah. and all that, all that stuff. Here's what makes me nervous about that in a, in a sense. And you see this a lot in the, in the coaching world, in the peak performance world. And we have a motto at the flow research collective, which is personality doesn't scale biology scales. And what we mean by that is too often people figure out what works for them and they try to teach other people what would work for them. Here, this worked for me. Let me teach it to you. Totally natural instinct, right? Unfortunately, it often fails. And the reason it fails is when you say personality, what works for me? Well, personality is shaped by early childhood experience and genetics. And a lot of things that really, really play a factor in how I would train you in anything is set up by early, I can't personality. It's, it's like, where are you, where are you on the introvert to extrovert scale? That's set up by early childhood experience and genetics. And it's, you can change it, but like over 10 years and slowly what your risk tolerances are, right? Your risk tolerances have to do with the availability of dopamine and dopamine receptors. And there's a, you know, lots of things go into that. Yours are different than mine and are different than other people's. And, um, so if I figure out what works for me and try to teach it to you often, because what works for me is suited to my personality, my risk tolerance is where I am and it doesn't work. You add then in add in all the differences in culture and upbringing and all the other it compounds and compounds and compounds. And often you, you can do a lot of damage in somebody's life. Biology, neurobiology, this is what evolution created specifically to work for everybody. That's the whole point. That's why it works. And I'll give you a great example from my own field, flow science. I always say psychology is incredibly useful for talking about stuff and thinking about stuff, but it's metaphorical. It's not mechanism. And when they were trying to train flow from the psychology of flow, right? Like the back in the nineties, um, they were bad at it. I mean, like you can flow in sports is this famous book written by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the godfather of flow psychology and Susan Jackson, who was one of his students at the university of Chicago. And she was, you know, trained a lot of high level athletes and they were trying to use the psychology to train, you know, elite Olympic caliber athletes. And it was a disaster. It just didn't work at the collective. As I said, we get, we train about a thousand people a month. We use the exact same psychometric instrument developed by Susan Jackson to measure flow um, to measure flow. And we see using the neurobiology a 70% increase in flow. And it's not because our Kung Fu is so good. It is, but it's mainly because we're using the biology and the biology works for everybody. That's great. So you're using tools to unlock the physiology and the biology in order to induce a state of flow. The funny thing about our tools, this is the other problem. And it's, I, you know, I always say that one of the problems that we have is 
we focus on psychology and physiology because we yeah. want something that's going to work everywhere. I don't want a technology that's you got to use to kind of get your brain right or a substance because there are going to be a lot of situations where you have to perform at your best where there's no time for those things, right? Or they're really inappropriate or you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I get you. Yep. And uh, I mean, when, when, you know, when you hear, Hey honey, can you come in here for a minute? Can I talk to you? You got to perform at your best with what immediately, happens next. at the snap of a finger. Yes. Immediately, yeah, right? Exactly, and yeah. no, honey, let me microdose this blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, so right. I get, right? <laughs> You're going to get shot, man. Give me just 20, <laughs> okay? Right. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So you get my point. But yep. what I'd like to say about the stuff that we do, and I'll give you, an, I'll give you some concrete examples in a second, but I would say one of the problems with this, the work we do is nothing we do if you talk about it in a bar, it's going to get you laid on a Friday night. It's not sexy. It's just not <laughs> sexy. It doesn't work that way. And it's because it was developed by evolution millions of years ago, right? It can serve through evolution. It's not designed for our blinky, blinky, shiny, shiny modern world. And it's not like all these crazy biohacks that people are wanting to employ. As far as I can tell, in 30 years of studying the neurobiology of peak performance, there's no such thing as a hack. There are no shortcuts. There's getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. And so I'll give you a simple example. Flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. The classic most important one is flow follows focus. It only shows up when all our attention is right here, right now. Complete concentration is a flow trigger. What does the research show? If you, the, one of the single best things you can do to maximize flow in your life is Start your work period. I don't say start your day. For most of it, it's going to be your day. But if you happen to be a night owl, you want to work it, you want to do your hardest work in alignment with your circadian rhythms, right? But for most of us, that's early morning. We wake up, we're fresh, and, and, and we can get after it. My wife happens to be a night owl. She wakes up at four o'clock in the afternoon. If I asked her to do like hard, complex thinking, you know, at eight o'clock in the morning, she's going to punch me. Um, or at least throw toast at me, right? Like she's not going to be happy. Honey, so, can we talk for a minute? Yeah, yeah exactly. She doesn't yeah. want to do that at eight o'clock in the morning. If, at four o'clock in the afternoon, she's totally game. So you want to, when you start your, you, you want to sort of focus and have a work session that is 90 minutes long. Why? Just like the REM sleep 90 minute cycle, there's a waking cycle that's 90 minutes long. So we focus best for like 90 to 120 minutes concentration. This, by the way, is why Montessori education is built around 90 to 120 minute periods of uninterrupted concentration. But it's all the same. So, and you want to practice distraction management on the front end. So turn off before you even get into this, anything that could, you know, pull you out, email, phone, alerts, messages, that sort of thing. Those get turned off ahead of time and a 90 minute block. And it is literally, I was just having this conversation um, on social media uh, over the past week. There's a lot of other flow hacks you can you can deploy, and you know, they're they're cool and interesting. But literally, this may be the single best thing you can do if you want to increase flow in your life. And it sounds like a 90 minute block of uninterrupted concentration. Is, I mean, like that's really sexy. Hey, hey, I'm starting my day with 90 minutes of uninterrupted concentration. And I'm practicing distraction management, huh? huh? That's the bar out. conversation, right? right? Yeah, I mean, seriously, like. Right? Let me tell you what I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost embarrassing. And it's funny, I meet people in the biohacking community. I literally, I literally met a guy who recently, like we were, it was in this conversation. He said, what, yeah, I was talking about this. He's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm not into that, but I've been increasing testosterone. I was like, really, what are you doing? He's like, icing my testicles. 
<laughs> Perfect. <laughs> More bar conversation. Oh, yes. I was like, you know what? This is the difference between me and you. One, yours is not going to work and mine is. And two, yours is going to get you laid and mine is not. <laughs> Different goals. One, you know, is you want to be better at work on Monday. The other is, well, you know. Yeah. No but kidding. I literally, I was just like, okay. You, you you just keep going with that. <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. It was amazing. <laughs> oh, I, mean, you know, I got questions in front of me, man, but I think we just blew it out of the water with yeah, I asked my sorry, testicles. I don't, I don't there know you how go. to top that. <laughs> you said you wanted to have a casual, free-flowing conversation, <laughs> so you know. I just brought up all the important, relevant information. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> more, more after this. Yes. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Oh, I love it, man. Uh, I'll be here all week yeah, try the sweet. <laughs> so let's try to get back on maybe a little bit yeah <laughs> the art of uh the art of impossible you said it's a practical playbook right <laughs> and you were talking about this this wide spectrum of people a little earlier you know we're, we're talking about athletes you know entrepreneurs but then you've got soccer moms on the other side of the spectrum you know where is this because everyone wants to be able to do more be more have more how do you dive into this to the point to where that actually becomes something that sticks because it's a book and you know it's not a business book that sucks obviously yeah but there's there's got to be a point to where it's like how do you start to train this because you even talked about this is so here's the there are in the book i I talk about a big sequence of shit right so oh my god how am i going to train up all that stuff and there is a big sequence of shit there's no i'm not going to lie to you right and it doesn't, none of this happens overnight. And, and the thing, the truth of the matter is the, the two things that are hard about peak performance for most people, one, not sexy, right? So this stuff, it's almost hard to believe that it works as well as it does. The second difficulty is that peak performance works like compound interest. It's about showing up and doing a handful of things today, handful of things tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next day. It's the repeatability that really matters over time. And when I say a handful of things, I'm not kidding. There are a bunch of onboarding practices that you are that are necessary to sort of get you into the game. But to perform, to what we mean by peak performance, as far as we can tell, it comes down to about six things you have to do every day. And I just listed the biggest one, the 90 minutes for uninterrupted concentration, but you're going to use that in, to work on whatever is your most important goal for the day. Like that's your time. It's just that you want to section it this way. Some of the other things that you'll need to do on a daily basis are very quick, five minutes, 10 minutes. They're just little sort of uh, mental health hygiene stuff. And then there's about six things to do every week. It's not in un, it's not unreasonable. And the truth of the matter is anybody who is at all successful in the world, what happens is when people read The Art of Impossible is especially anybody who's top 30% of whatever field they're in, top 40% of whatever field they're in, they're doing a bunch of this stuff anyways, because the biology is the same. If you're a top performer anywhere, these are the things you're using. What happens when the people read The Art of Impossible is like, oh, wow, this is related. to. I didn't know this worked together. Oh, and if I do it this way, you get farther faster. Oh, and I didn't know this piece was here. Oh, and I'm doing this and I'm doing, oh, and I, right. That's the experience most people have when reading this book, because there's no other tools to reach for. This is just our biology. What most people don't realize is, oh, there's a system. It's designed to work in an order in a specific way. And if I get it the functioning the way it's supposed to, you know, it's like any system, right? Like you get it functioning the way it's supposed to, yeah, and it just yeah. works better. Yep. That's 
start to finish, how long does it take to read the book? People love my writing and find it. I like, I try very hard to make my writing fun. So there's a bunch of sides in here, but I try very, very hard. I, I have believed for a very long time and other writers will argue with me about this, but my feeling is that people are busy. And if you're going to be as cool as, I mean, like six, seven hours is what it's going to take to read this book, right? If you're going to give me six to seven hours of your time, that's precious. I need to like, it's not just my job to like, I always say that my job is both to blow your mind, right? Often with what's possible, but it's also, I want you to have a blast. And so my favorite thing about this book uh, that I've heard so far um, in people reading it, and I've heard this hundreds of times, so I'm going to say it on the air now, which is, dude, I picked it up and I couldn't put it down to page 80 or page 100. Like I didn't even know what happened. And I was like, okay, I did my job. That's my, and that's usually often what happens. You know, if I'm doing my job, that's hopefully that's what's happening to the reader. Um, that's what I want to happen. That's what I'm trying to happen. And because I'm both an expert in writing and an expert in neuroscience, I know how to do the like fun things that make that happen in the brain. Um, so that's fun. Hopefully that's it works. <laughs> yeah, no joke. When you were writing this, did you see any of your own habits change or your family's habits as you were writing the book? I, the, the, yeah, I was, I, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I wrote this, I mean, this is, I wrote this book over such a long period of time. The answer is yes, of course. I was trying to give you a quick, big example. And, um, uh, I, um, trying to think of what's a, what, what's a quick, I don't have a quick, yeah, a lot, a lot changed. I, a lot of the stuff around, um, there's some stuff about uh, skill acquisition. I'm a lifelong athlete and I, you know, I, I, I still run around on the weekends and chase professional athletes around mountains on bikes and skis. And I'm, um, which is often a terrifying experience. And so there's, and I have like the physical stuff, the physical stuff it will fear as a motivator is a, that's a constant negotiation, right? Cause you're constantly pushing and, and I'm, I very much like progression so, you know, you keep pushing and I, it, you know, it's interesting. That's one that I keep learning, but no, I, um, I actually am not a, I come from a family of very gifted athletes and I'm not, I'm the black sheep of the family. I'm not a naturally gifted athlete. I got here through like more endless amounts of hard work and I pay a lot of attention. There's a bunch of stuff in the book about skill learning and I've been applying a bunch of it to how I am learning physical skills. I've been doing a lot of freestyle skiing. So a lot of park skiing and, and, jumps and flips and spins and things like that. And, um, I'm terrified of breaking more bones. I've broken a lot of bones. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm replying a lot of that stuff to how I'm progressing. Um, cause it's, you know, anybody would tell you it's just idiotic for somebody in their fifties to learn how to park ski, but you know, I'm often that kind of idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and it's full circle. You're oh, that one guy. That kind of idiot. <laughs> you know? uh, That's awesome. I'm not saying you guys should do this, but I am saying I do it. Yeah. What do you enjoy the most out of all this? I mean, you know, with the, with the flow research collective, what, what's the thing that really fulfills yeah, I, you? You know, I, 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 three, I love three things. I've, I've loved the same three things forever. I, you know, I love writing. So, um, you know, for me, whenever my books are successful, all that really means is, oh, wow, I have permission to write another book. Like, they're going to let me not write another book. Cool. Right. Like, so some of that is really just like, I'm a legit creative. And when you talk about like what I think defines a legitimate creative is creatives, 
They don't care how shit is doing in the real world. Like, I, yes, I hit 10 bestseller lists and that was cool. What I care about is the next creative thing that I'm doing, right? That's much more interesting to me. So there's some of that. I'm with flow science and research. There's a, people always want to say, oh, you're doing this for the good of the world. And, and, and I'm like, no, guys, like, that's great that that's happening. That's not my altruism. I'm doing this because I love the puzzle. The mystery is so profound. Flow bumps up against so many things that are deeply foundational, really weird questions about consciousness and the brain and things like that. So I love the mystery. I, the fact that it's useful is awesome. And then I'm in it for the animals. I'm a long time my wife and I run a dog sanctuary. I'm a long-time environmental advocate. I do lots of work on that front. I have a company on that, on that side. And so I do a tremendous amount of work to try to protect biodiversity, plants, animals, and ecosystems. Um, and those are the three things. Like, I'm in it for all those things. That's what keeps me motivated. I love all those things. That's awesome. Why do you, you write books in trilogies, right? Or kind of like three sections or something? Uh, yeah. Not intentionally, man. Yeah. <laughs> Not intentionally. So, um, yeah, abundance, abundance. So abundance was this book about people solving impossible challenges in the world, like poverty and energy scarcity and water shortages, like crazy challenges, right? And we wrote this book about people, how we're leveraging technology and some of these psychological tools we've been talking about to take on these challenges. And so many entrepreneurs got so damn excited by the book that they want to know, how do we do this? And so thus bold, okay, here's the how-to. And then we ended up writing faster because... The future is faster than you think because the story wasn't done. The technologies we talked about in abundance in our first book that entrepreneurs were starting to harness, we started to realize they were starting to converge. And uh, entrepreneurs who were building businesses at these convergences had way more power and that it was going to impact every sort of industry. That was a moral duty. We were like, oh, shit, we better write this one. And uh, um I have written, I mean, when it comes to flow, I've actually written six books on flow at this point, but people like to lump them into trilogies depending on how you do it. Um, so, and uh, I, I also write novels and um, I am currently, I have finished, I am currently in the middle of a sci-fi trilogy. Yeah. It did happen. <laughs> it did happen. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It, I, I don't know what it is with, with, with that. So you're talking about, you've got the sci-fi yeah, okay, trilogy. Okay, goddamn, I got OCD. What do you want? Yeah. <laughs> you've got the business books that don't suck, but then you got the sci-fi. <laughs> well, I, some of the sci-fi books are interestingly, because I write books about future te technology and like where the world has gone, uh, in the case of Faster, I actually started writing this sci-fi series I'm writing now because I wanted Peter and I, Diamandis, who I was co-writing the book with, we were talking about these converging lines of exponentials and it gets like literally the whole world as we know it is getting reinvented as a result of this. And I was trying to write about what this looks like. I couldn't do it. I had to create a world where all these technologies came together and then I put characters in it and I had them live for a while, which is how I sort of like wrap my head around the puzzle of writing as a nonfiction book, believe huh. it or not. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> That's awesome, brother. <laughs> is this some, the state of flow? Is this something that, because we talk about entrepreneurs, high performance athletes, everything. Is this something that, I, I don't know a better way to put this, but the regular Joe Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. A, so, okay, so clearest thing, one of the clearest things we know about flow. How do we know anything about flow? A guy named Mihai Chick sent me high. Father, Godfather Flow Psychology is a psychologist at the University of Chicago, and he's obsessed with optimal performance. So he goes around the globe 
talking to anybody you can think about times in their life when they felt their best, they performed their best. And he talked to everybody. He starts out, he talks to experts like stockbrokers, surgeons, dancers, rock climbers. And he's like, all right, I'm going to just take it into the real world. Detroit assembly line workers, Chicago Perfect. meat packers. You knew where I was going. Yep, yep. Elderly Korean women, Japanese teenage motorcycle gang members, Navajo sheep herders, Italian grape farmers. I mean, everybody you could possibly imagine. This is one of the most widespread findings in psychology that flow is ubiquitous. It's universal. It shows up in anyone, anywhere, provided certain initial conditions are met. In fact, studies show we spend about 5% of our work life in states of microflow, the sort of the low end of the flow state spectrum, um, without even noticing it often. This is like, I'll give you a really common flow state at work, middle managers in conversation. So two middle managers start talking and they get so sucked in. It's interpersonal flow, right? Two people talk and they get so sucked in that an hour goes by, they don't even notice. That's really common in the work environment. People don't even realize it. When you start to notice these microflow events, you can start turning them up. There's ways to turn microflow into macroflow so you can get deeper into the state. By the way, this is where the term flow comes from, this giant experiment when Csikszentmihalyi went around the world. What everybody kept saying to him, they said the same thing. They said, you know, when I'm in... When I'm at my best, I'm in this state of consciousness, this altered state where every decision, every action seems to flow just like perfectly effortlessly from the last. That's where the term comes from. It's this technically it's a phenomenological description of the state. It describes how the state feels um, and what it really is giving a look at it for that to be possible. You're looking at high speed, near perfect decision making, which is one of the big things that happens in flow. Um, that's how, why every decision, every action can lead from one to the next, to the next, to the next. You're, you're among other things being amplified. Most of the aspects of decision making are being turned up. Can this, can a flow state be derailed in the middle of it? And how does that happen? Yeah, really easily. I mean, uh, distraction of any kind is the number is the number one thing. Um, uh, that will uh, there was there was really interesting work. So coding, software coding is a high flow job. You, to be really good at it, you need flow. So there's been a lot of work done on coders and flow. And there was a study that found, um, a big study that found the most common uh, thing that knocked coders out of flow was distraction, somebody knocking on a door, a phone ringing, and that um, it took them a minimum of 15 minutes to get back into flow if they could get back at all. And often they couldn't. Um, so one of the things we tell people is not don't just practice distraction management like for this 90 minutes on a demonstration we really emphasize have your conversations ahead of time so it, now everybody's working from home so talk to your spouse talk to your children talk to anybody who's going to sort of interrupt you and the point is flow is a magnificent amplification in so many different things but productivity goes through the roof so mckinsey the business consultancy they did a study um and it's self-reported so a little bit of grain of salt but they went around the world and spent 10 years. They talked to top executives about how much more productive do you think you are in flow? And on average, they heard 500% more productive. Huge uptick in productivity. And we see the same thing, similar numbers in creativity and learning and, and the other things that flow seems to amplify. Um, so you get a lot of time back. So you're taking 90 minutes away, and but have your conversations ahead of time. Say, look, I'm taking 90 minutes right now. Leave me alone, right? Um, you'll get more time back on the other end uh, to put kind of a really fine point on it. We work with a lot of organizations. First thing I do when I walk into a major organization is I tell people, if you can't put a sign on your door that says, fuck off, I'm flowing, 
can't do this work. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. Man, uh, this has been amazing. The, there's one thing that I want to leave with here. You know, maybe close the the book on this because it high performance, right? And you know, there's a book that I read just recently from a coach of mine that told me mindset, you know, fixed mindset versus growth mindset. And it's focused on entrepreneurs, but it's focused on pretty much everybody too. Yeah. Is there something, you know, cause that's so cliche now too, you know, the, the mindset word just say, Oh yeah, you know, just shift your mindset, shift your mindset, and then you'll be good. That's great. But what psychological events or anything can prevent you from even entering this state of flow? You know, are there individuals that are so, yeah, so sort of stuck where they can't? the easiest thing I can do for everybody who's listening. If you go to www.flowblocker.com, so we built the diagnostic, it turns out there are six major flow blockers. Most people suffer from one or two, but there's usually a big one. And we just, I got sick of the conversation. So I was like, you know what? We're building the goddamn diagnostic. We'll give the thing away. We'll give it. So, so I don't have to have the conversation. Anymore. What more flow? Here's, here's a pl- good place to start. Um, and it, it will help you diagnose what's in your way. And then it's prescriptive. It'll tell you these are the steps you can take. And um, that's, uh, that's a great place for everybody to start. And you can have, it's free. You don't even have to buy the book, read the book. That's awesome. (laughs) Cool, my man. Flowblocker.com. I love that. All right. The book, The Art of Impossible, is available everywhere. Yes. Yes. Amazon. I mean, if there's a Barnes and Nobles, it's still open near you. Go go for it. Support your indies. Support your indies during the Right on. Oh, yeah, for sure, my man. That's amazing. Right on. Brother, thank you for being on, Stephen. It's been amazing talking to you. You've just enlightened me today. Thanks, brother. Oh, thank you. Super fun. I'm glad hanging out, and I appreciate your interest in my work. What's shaking? Thank you for joining me on the All In Podcast. Click the subscribe button and smash that bell for notifications. Text me, 312-535-8520. Follow me on social media, at Mr. Rick Jordan. See you next episode. I am Rick Jordan, and I approve this message.